Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey, it's The Ramble, brought to you by Harry's Shave. The best possible blades, the best possible shave, and the best possible price. If you go to harrys.com and enter the coupon code RAMBLE, R-A-M-B-L-E, you'll get $5 off the already low price, and you will love shaving again. Your face will thank you for it, but of course, you are your face, so you're thanking yourself. You know what I mean. Give it a try. And brought to you by SaneBox. Let's, let's talk about your email for a second, right? It's a basically a hellish cornucopia of spam and phishing and subscriptions you can't get off and entreaties from Nigerian princes. And the one letter you really want to get to is buried in the tsunami of electronic dreck. Ah, but what if there was a way to take emails, the ones you really wanted to see, and put them in a folder here that you'd look at now, and take the emails you want to get to later and put them in a folder that said, for later, and the emails from the people that you never, ever wanted to hear from again. Well, they'd be consigned to this other folder here where their bits are crushed into non-existence. Doesn't that sound sane? It does. Inbox Zero. It's a dream for most people. It's a reality for those who use SaneBox. SaneBox.com slash ramble, and uh, see what they can do for you to get your email back in control and your sanity restored to your email existence. Hello, and welcome to Novel Writing. No, of course not. This is The Ramble, and I'm James Lilix. But I was thinking about that Monty Python novel writing skit uh, a few minutes ago. I'll tell you why. Last week I listened to a BBC documentary on the Monty Python comedy albums, which are different than the, than the shows or the movies. They started out essentially just doing the skits in front of microphones, embellishing nothing. And by the end... It had created these incredibly complex and imaginative sonic environments. But the first album they did was monophonic, and Graham Chapman took advantage of it by, by illustrating stereo, walking from one speaker to the other, which of course didn't happen because it was a monophonic. That's the joke. Well, I'm just thinking about that because I'm coming to you today in glorious monophonic sound, at least on the podcast vocal track here. I don't know why. I don't know why it bothers me. It tasks me like you wouldn't believe. I can't fix it. But, you know, people put up with monophonic for a very long time. That's all they had. That's all they knew. I'm sure they imagined that someday sound would get better because they'd seen technological advances in their own lifetime. But whether or not they could imagine what stereo was going to sound like, I don't know if they could. I don't know if it's possible. But mono was fine. I, my grandfather... Uh, I think was something of an early technological, early adapter. Adopter? An adopter of adapters? Uh, he probably made quite quickly the transition from the Edison cylinder to the record. And uh, in the farmhouse where I spent every Sunday, upstairs, and this is a rambling farmhouse they'd been building onto it for years, added something here, something there, you know, guy who they painted his barn one year, and the next year he did their plumbing. Upstairs, where the bedrooms were, 
there was a there was a door, and when you opened the door, it was dark, no lights, two steps down, corridor, creaky, to your left, a door, inside, a closet filled with a detritus of, of 80 years of farm life. The, the fur coats, the, the dressmaker dummy, which terrifies you when you're a kid, sorry, Sears catalogs, board games, shoes, I would give anything now to go back and look at what was in that dark and strange closet where it all went in the fire. Go a bit more down the hall to the right, a room. May have been my uncle's room, may have been my mother's room, I don't know, but by the window, sitting on a table, was an old Victrola. And it worked. This was Grandma and Grandpa's entertainment system from the 20s. Big horn, heavy tone arm. You could have taken that tone arm and used it as a blunt instrument to knock somebody senseless. You wound it up, you put the very heavy disc on, and then you... You, you put on this needle that was like a railroad spike, this thing. Not exactly, when you think about it, geared for high fidelity, but at the time, it would manage to coax from these grooves, these ancient sounds, and we would listen to these records and think, why did anybody listen to this? These strange, trebly voices, these, these archaic sounds and instrumentations and orchestrations. And one of the songs was just some guy laughing. It was some guy telling stories, and then he'd laugh at his own jokes, which was I, apparently was a big novelty thing. People liked to hear people laugh then. But now I think back on that, and I think that's, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of taking the stereo and putting it somewhere else in the attic because you might somehow get back to it someday, which you never do. And I also think, I wonder if anybody died in this room. Looking back at it, you never know whether or not, you know, a hired man expired up there or some some aunt or uncle that you never knew, some family secret. It, the, the memory of the farmhouse is a warm one, but that one creeps me out. I've never died of dysentery, though. I have, however, died of dengue fever many, many times. You know, I was talking a little while ago about um, video games and the sounds of video games and the archaic early video games where you would just type words on screen and... Uh, have to use the theater of the imagination to conjure up the landscapes in which you walked. Well, the other day, uh, I said, of course, if you die from dysentery, that's Oregon Trail. Dengue fever, you get from Treasures Pilot Island or something like that, a text adventure that I remember playing uh, with the giant Swede back in the early, early days on a TI-99 with a tape backup. And what I remember about that was dying from dengue fever over and over and over again. It's one of those games where you just, that's some point you realize, I can't cut these vines to build a raft. I can't get through the forest. I can't do any, I can get around the bear. Oh, I can get around the bear because he likes to lick my salty hand. I'm just dying of dengue fever and I'm done with this game. And uh, we were talking about this and uh, Giant Swede used the phrase, that was the Quipa point. This is friendship. Friendship is when you can say to somebody, for example, you know, how you doing? You want to go out? Uh, you want to run to Home Depot? And your friend says, I got dengue fever. It's bad. Because that's how it was in the game. That's what it always said. You have dengue fever. It's bad. And if your friend says that they've hit a point where they just want to go on and they want to give up, they've hit the Quipa point, which as I may have mentioned before, either here or in blog or wherever. From the leather goddesses of Phobos, you were attempting to get through an underground passage, which was flooded, and you were carrying a canoe, I think, and you had to go through the sequence of jumping and hopping and clapping and shouting Quipa, and you had to 
type these things, and you had to type them in a particular order in order to keep from getting devoured by aquatic voles or something like that. I just got so damned tired of typing Kuipa and clapping and hopping that I gave up on the game. And ever since, the point at which a game or an endeavor or any sort of social arrangement becomes untenable because of the effort required to do something that you really don't care about doing anymore, that's the Kuipa point. So with my friend of longstanding, the giant Swede, you'd say something about uh, dengue fever, the Kuipa point, and something else. Um, we were at Home Depot, and he was looking for a particular kind of grass. This grass had served him well before, this seed. And this is the time of the year where you are looking, of course, to reseed the bare patches. And you also realize the astonishing array of technological advances that have come about in the realm of grass seed. There's shade, yes. There's sun, yes. And there's shade and sun mixture. How does it know? How do you... How do you figure that out exactly? But they do, they do. And there was one blend that when you put it on, made its own mulch. It was like the old dog food that made its own gravy. Mulch is built right into this thing, man. It's incredible. You just, you hose it down with a little water and it forms its own protective coating that gets the grass in that greenhouse spirit. And I did this. That's the stuff that I bought. And I poured it all over the place and I hosed it down. And it looked as if I had laid down about an inch of paper mache over the yard. When I took the stuff up a couple of weeks ago, I had essentially five dozen shredded Sunday New York Times had been plastered over everything and had killed dead every single blade beneath. Great stuff. Went back to the grass store place and I was talking to the guy about the extraordinary options we have today in grass seed. And I mentioned that this stuff here with the newspaper in it had uh, killed my lawn dead, graveyard dead. He said, yeah, yeah, it'll do that. I don't recommend it. It's expertise like that that keeps me coming back to the store. Anyway, the Swede is looking for this particular blend and I don't know what it was. Maybe it had a little bit of fescue. Maybe it didn't have any fescue at all. Maybe it was a, a water miser seed, or maybe it was one of those seeds that just demands nothing but water because plants love it. Maybe it would, maybe it's a self-generating carbon dioxide belt. I don't know what it was, but he loved it and he knew it and he couldn't find it. They didn't make it anymore. And I looked at him and I said, it's the track two of seeds. And he knew exactly what I was saying. No more need to be said than that. Because decades, again, Decades ago, or going back to the 80s or something, I remember at some point he became enamored of a particular razor blade, the Track 2, and there was a kind of Track 2 with a certain kind of blade that didn't have the little emollients that come off your face, the little softening, moistening, lubricating strips, which he, no Luddite he, mind you, uh, believed was spreading some sort of carcinogenic plastic over your skin. Very uncharacteristic for him. And you point out, yeah, you're also a three-pack-a-day man, so... but. So th this track two blade was the grail of shaving for him. And he, uh, he, he couldn't find it anymore. They didn't make it anymore. He would go to distant you know, drugstores looking perhaps for the last few before they'd been recalled. And it, it had been done out of spite, of course. They'd done this because it was such a good product that they wanted to take it away from people. Now, of course, that doesn't make any sense, but it would, it would be years before he stopped lamenting the the the, uh, the lack of availability of this damn blade and we all got just really tired about it yeah steve we know we know we know it was your favorite blade they don't make it anymore live with it deal 
come into this world in which we're living now, in which we have three planes. Three, come with me, come with me. Look it over here. Someday there'll be four. Someday we'll be on the moon shaving our faces with five blades, buddy. But to this day, the unavailability of that track two is still a common term between the two of us for something that was great, which has now been taken away. So there you have it, really, essentially, in a friendship, going back three decades, three phrases which really do sum up a lot of life. Dengue fever. It's bad. Yeah. The Kuiper point at which you give up and the track two moment in which that thing has been taken away from you and you can't find it anymore. Either because you lost it, you threw it away, you squandered the opportunity, or some malevolent or indifferent force decided to take it away under the belief you'd like something else. Well, of course, I didn't care because I would use any old blade because I was cheap. I would get the little plastic things that you got at the drugstore that, uh, that had... The first shave was always great. first one was always absolutely wonderful. Uh, and the second one, of course, was like Winston Smith with his blade from 1984, which you know, had been used for three years and essentially had developed what those cheap blades do. They have that, that taste for blood. And the first time they get it, it just changes them. They become different and they can't wait to drink even more. The difficulty for me is that I have a dimple in my chin. And as I've often said, trying to shave the dimple is like trying to paint a golf ball that has already gone down the hole. It's hard. It's not impossible, but it's tough. And it usually results in blood. In blood. So what do you do then when you've cut yourself shaving? Well, of course, you know what you do. You apply, that's right, a styptic pencil. But you don't, do you? Nobody does anymore. The styptic pencil used to be a thing that was in every man's, every man's, you know, when he opened up that uh, medicine cabinet in the morning. First thing, of course, is you look at your face and you're, you're haggard and, and you're unshaven and you're, and then you open up the thing and you plung and you get, and get your stuff out. And then when you shut the thing, according to commercials, you are magically restored for some reason. You're always looking better. But in there would be, next to the milk of magnesia, perhaps, and the castor oil, a styptic pencil, which was supposed to uh, cause coagulation. Uh, oh, also, there was iodine in there. Iodine, the, the treatment for all wounds that kids get. I'm sorry, you've cut yourself. It hurts. It really, really hurts. Let me pour this thing that hurts even more upon it. Or mercurochrome. When mom got out the mercurochrome, you know that pain was going to come. Anyway, the styptic pencil uh, caused the thing to stop. And I always thought that that sounded like some sort of Egyptian branch of Christianity that would be ever at war with the Copts. Uh, you don't find styptic pencils anymore. Oh, you can go buy one if you wish. But chances are sometimes you don't because you haven't cut yourself shaving in some time. Because perhaps one of those people you've gone over to, the idea of shaving your face with an electric razor, which I used to do for a while. And every time I did, I always felt like Jack Lemon in Days of Wine and Roses, uh, who would find himself shaving at the, the next morning, um, hungover, drastically so, and uh, grinding the blades on his face as he talked about how... Uh, how he really tied one on the other night. And it's something of that era, when you look back on that, you realize that at, in the sort of Mad Men-esque era, they can't have been making it up. That actually had to strike some people as a realistic thing to say, that somebody would come to work unshaven and say, man, I really got drunk last night. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. 
Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Holy cow, wife and I really put it away. Man, did we get lit. But apparently they did. Um, and that was a sign that you were living that, uh, that interesting lifestyle. Perhaps when you did, when you got lit up, you would, uh, you'd listen to stereo. Hi-fi stereo. But what kind? Let's think. There was, of course, when, when, when music, when, when stereo came out, it was a great thing about stereo separation. That's how you knew it was stereo when things were coming from different parts of the speakers. There's a wonderful sequence in Peg Lynch's Couple Next Door where the husband is an audiophile and, and describes all of the, the wonderfuls and the advantages of stereo and the separation of instruments. Now you can pick them out. And he does so to Aunt Maggie, who's from a previous generation and doesn't care and thinks Shostakovich is ugly and why would you want this din anyway? Anyway, with the creation of stereo, you had people who now appreciated music in an entirely different way because they were listening to the system, not the music. They were reveling in the separation, the effects, the instrumentation, the, the trebles and the bass, and what had before just simply been well, monophonic, monochromatic, was now extraordinary. And it's hard for us to imagine what that transition must have been like, how revelatory it must have been. Imagine this is what you're used to. And then you buy a stereo and you drop the needle for the first time and you hear this. It's HD. It's incredible how it must have sounded to people. Of course, there were those who say, I'm not going to listen to some commercial schmaltzy pap. I'm avant-garde. I'm going to go to those artists who are using this new stereo sound to create sonic scapes, the likes of which people have never heard. And so, they probably listen to something like this. Well, to quote Krusty the Clown, what the hell is that? That actually was very early electronic music, 1963-64. That was intended to put babies to sleep. It was from an album, a series of albums called Soothing Sounds for Babies. And is now regarded as an early classic of the ambient music genre. But at the time, it was a guy just futzing around with all kinds of cool new tools to create cool new music. For kids, sure, but for anybody else who was discerning enough to understand it. Uh, and that composer, by the way, to slip into Paul Harvey mode here, you know his most famous song. Trust me, you do. Powerhouse by Raymond Scott as heard in many fine Warner Brothers cartoons but I'm getting a little bit far afield here Jack Lemmon at his desk shaving with an electric razor now it's possible that they've been up all night listening to that wild young new sound of the kids but it's more likely that your classic alcoholic in the 50s and 60s would be listening to Jackie Gleason 
they would be listening to any number of the fine records that Jackie Gleason put his name on, the point of which was to get drunk, uh, seduce somebody, or just remember things. And so it was a series of records so saturated with rue and recollection and regret and hope and memory. Well, it's, it's hard not to want to reach for three fingers of four roses upon hearing something like this. Bobby Hackett on the horn there. His job over the course of several Jackie Gleason uh, albums was to come in about 55 seconds into the song and just blast these wonderful solos. But anyway, that was your previous night. And now you wake up the next morning and you're hungover and you got to go to work and you haven't shaven. And so you end up like Jack Lemon, shaving at his desk, grinding the whirring blades into his face as he tells a co-worker, man, did we get boiled last night. And for some reason, I don't know when I saw the movie, but I always associated electric razors with sloth, with doing something that really ought to be done in a different way with deliberation. And I think this may go back to the fact that I grew up getting my hair cut in a classic men's barbershop. The Graver Barbershop. The Graver was connected to the Hotel Graver, as a matter of fact. And I never really... Graver was the name of... Uh, there are usual reasons for the names of the hotel, but it, it, it seemed like, you know, a very sort of um, morbid term. I'm going to the Graver. And this was a classic three-chair operation with Esquire and, uh, you know, other non-nude men's magazines, three guys, white smocks, 
red chairs that went up and down, big mirror, and bottles of blue barbicide, which as a kid I looked at and was, first of all, the color was enchanting, and secondly, the term itself was just sort of exotic. Barbicide. Later you learn. What does that mean? Is this how you kill a barber? You make him drink this stuff? According to Barbicide's website, or rather Wikipedia entry, the term actually came from a little private joke that the inventor of Barbicide, Mr. King, had. His son said he hated barbers, and so he called it Barbicide, which means to kill barbers. And I thought, well, no. Who hates barbers? A barber isn't something that you hate in general as a profession unless you have really extremely sensitive hair and it hurts to have it cut. But I grew up, as I said, uh, at this barber shop. And when I first went there, they would put a board across the arms of the chair. That's how small I was. And I knew I was a man when I no longer had to sit on that board. The other great thing about the Graver Barbershop was that it was connected to, of course, a hotel with a revolving door which went right to the lobby so you could see salesmen checking in and people walking around and getting telegrams and all those other wonderful things. Of course, weren't getting telegrams. It was the 1960s. But it, it, was, a, it was almost like a, a big city environment that somehow had been teleported into this corner of Fargo. And it made it even better that across the street was the old Carnegie Library. And after I got my hair cut, I would go up its creaky steps and get a Tom Swift book or something to take home. So my memories of barbershops go back to that, to watching men getting shaved, getting lathered by this machine, this black humming machine that pumped out hot lather. And the strop, Jim Crow, which I believe that was the name of the, uh, the barber who served us all, would just, you know, work the razor back and forth on the strop and then shave expertly without a little hint of the red to soil the pristine white of the foam. When you think about it, shaving foam should really be red. That's shaving to me. And anything less is just sort of cheating. And anything less is just sort of lazy. Anyway, when I got my first packet of Harry's razors... And there's a great exhalation of relief because everybody knew I was going to get to that at some point. Just get to it already. But it's true. Um, it's absolutely true that when I got my Harry's blades, I thought, what if they're really, really good? And then what if one day they don't make them anymore? What if I'm wandering around the stores crying out for my Harry's and the giant Swede says, yeah, tell me about it. Track two. Well, life is about risk. And... I don't want to even think of the day in which Harry's won't be around. I've got a pretty good track record given that the factory from which they get their blades has been around for a hundred years. And given the fact that people have been rediscovering what it's like to have a pleasurable shave with Harry's, I think the future is pretty much golden for these guys. And I'm happy to help them because it's the best shave I've ever had. And I've used all kinds of blades. I use track two. I use fresh electrics, I have to admit. What does Harry's give you? Well, as I said before, it's got that 100-year-old factory from German. German steel. Yeah, and they own it, so there's no cost to the middleman. That brings the price down. They have um, a well-balanced razor that fits in your hand and is a thing of beauty itself. The one that I have, honestly, looks like you would find it in your stateroom at the Hindenburg. Now, what am I going to pay for all this, you say? <clears throat> because you're concerned about such things, and sensibly so. That's the great thing about Harry's. If this was some premium experience for a premium price, there would be people who would pay it. But the great thing is it's a premium experience for a, a really reasonable price. The starter set's 15 bucks. 15 simoleons, people. That's the razor, three blades, and your choice of the shave cream or the foaming shave gel. I like either. I like both. I run out of one, I use the other. I don't care. They're both great. Now, as a bonus, though, you get $5 off your first purchase with the code RAMBLE. After using the code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving 
for 10 bucks. And it comes right to your door because this is the modern world. You don't have to get in your car and drive someplace else and pay hideous amounts of money for the blades that are going to bite you after a while. No, it comes right to your door, free shipping. And satisfaction, well, it's guaranteed. So there you go. So go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the coupon code RAMBLE. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash RAMBLE. $10. Start shaving smart soon. You'll never go back to anything else you used before to clean the follicles off your face. My father, I think, did use an electric for a while, so I don't mean to completely besmirch the people who use electrics. I know that because there was, in the cabinet in our house, a bottle of Electroshave. And there were other such stinging astringents that you slapped on your mug after you'd woken it up. Um, but I know that, uh, that he'd used blades before. In the basement of our house, there was a bathroom. And in the bathroom was a classic medicine cabinet, by which I mean the mirror on the front. And you opened it up, and inside was the mercurochrome and all the rest of it. And there was a little slot that fascinated me as a kid. It said, used razors. And it was about the size of a, a razor blade, of course. And when you were done with your razor, you just pushed the blade through the little slot. Where did it go? Well, years later, I actually had the, the, uh, the brilliant insight that it could not vanish in some interdimensional portal, but actually probably was on the other side of the wall. And so I went into that closet, which I had been told not to do. There's no reason for that except just don't go in there and mess things up. And in the closet, well, there's a dressmaker's dummy for one thing. And there was also um, a hole in the wall on the other side and some used razors on the floor where they, Lord knows how long they had been there, but that's where they went. So I can't quite figure out what the point of that was. When you're done with your razor, don't throw it in the trash, push it through this hole in the wall, and then later pick it up. Anyway, I think my father may have switched to an electric because uh, he got one for a present, Christmas. And maybe he was just tired of shaving. Sometimes guys just get tired of shaving. Those are the guys who don't have Harry's. Um, and he grew up very, very poor. And an electric shaver was sort of this cool luxury object. Same with my grandfather, I think. I think my grandfather probably went to an electric. I seem to remember a Remington in the bathroom of the farmhouse. Maybe it was because he wasn't too confident about dragging a sharp blade around his neck at the age of 86. Entirely possible. There wasn't a stereo at the farmhouse. There wasn't a record player downstairs at all. There was a big color TV, big for the day, because Grandpa loved to watch television, loved his color TV. Nothing better than to sit in the big chair and fire up an old gold and watch Hee Haw. And he would, he would light and forget to smoke sometimes. And he would sit there, and the cigarette would burn almost down to the filter. And we would say, Grandpa, you're ash. And he would very slowly, with a steady hand, move it all the way to the ashtray and knock off two inches. So come to think of it, maybe if his hand was that steady, he really could have used a straight razor, but preferred the electric anyway. And I always wonder sometimes, like I said, there wasn't any music in the house. It doesn't make it sound like it was some unhappy place. It was a happy farmhouse. But what music there was, I'm sure, came from the little radio in the kitchen. Which I always wonder if, if he ever, when he was upstairs, looked at that door to that hallway where one of his children had grown up and opened the door and walked down those two steps, down the hall, past the closet, into the small room, and looked at the Victrola 
which worked, which sat there with a stack of shellac. And I wonder if he ever just put on an old record from his raging, roaring 20s. As I said, the house uh, burned, but it was not lost to fire. It was surrendered to it, really. No one lived there. My aunt and uncle and their son who ran the farm had long lived in a house across the road from the old farmhouse, and uh, when Grandma and Grandpa were gone, there was no reason for the farmhouse to stand. It would just fall down. So they brought in the local firefighters to have an exercise, and they set it alight. Down it went, and I have no idea how much was taken out before it went. No idea if the items in that room with the Victrol and the rest of it were regarded as trash and consigned to the heap. Don't know. When Google first came up with their aerial satellite views, of course, I went to, to the farm to look, as you go to look at all the places that were important to you in life. And while, of course, you can't see the house because it's gone, you can see the stand of trees around it that define the house by its absence. Boy, there'd be something to put in a novel, wouldn't it? The Saturday afternoon in November was approaching, and he's done the definite article, the again. And he's writing fluently, easily, with flowing strokes. 
approach of the pen as he comes up to the middle of this first sentence. And with this 11th novel well underway and the prospects of a good day's writing ahead, back to the studio. Thank you, Michael Palin. This has been Novel Writing with James Lilacs, a.k.a. The Ramble. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you down the road. I wanted to be a lumberjack.